Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. I'm going to read you a story today by the Canadian literary giant, Austin Clark. He was a Torontonian, born and raised in Barbados. Austin was an exceptional writer and thinker who won many of the major Commonwealth prizes. He wrote 11 novels, many, many short stories, books of poetry, and several memoirs. One of his gifts to the world was his writing set in Toronto, about the people of Toronto, especially the Caribbean immigrants of that city. And because Austin passed away about two years ago now, I invited someone who knew him very well to talk about his life and his legacy. Aita Sadu is a storyteller and the co-owner of the bookstore and cultural center in Toronto called A Different Book List. As the folks from the bookstore put it, they bring you literary gems from Canada's cultural mosaic from the South to the North, from Africa to the Caribbean, from Asia to South America. The musical accompaniment played live in this story is from a Torontonian artist named Dufet Charles. He is a singer, songwriter, and a guitarist born in Haiti. His musical style reflects a mix of his Haitian roots and African rhythms, which he calls the African soul. Very apropos. Today's story was originally published in Austin's collection entitled When He Was Free and Young and He Used to Wear Silks, it was more recently collected in a book called Choosing His Coffin. It follows an immigrant from Barbados who moves to Toronto and is dead set on climbing the ranks. It features a lot of Bayesian vernacular, and it was such a pleasure to read this story in front of a live audience in Toronto. I hope you enjoy. If you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Four Stations in His Circle by Austin Clark. (laughs) 
Immigration transformed Jefferson Theophilus Bell. And after five years made him deceitful, selfish, very ambitious. It saddened his friend Brewster very much, but he had to confess that Jefferson was the most successful of them all. Still, Brewster pitied him. However, Jefferson had qualities which Brewster tried to emulate even though JTB was not a likable man. He was too aesthetic and pensive and his friends hated him for it. But Jefferson had his mind on other things, a house and a piece of land around the house. I must own a piece of Canada. Every morning going to work at the Sherburn bus entered Rosedale, he became tense. The houses in Rosedale were large and beautiful, and as far as he could guess, they each had a fireplace because, man, I couldn't purchase a house unless it got a fireplace. Because, man, I couldn't purchase a house that didn't have that fire sparkling and playing games on my face in the winter nights crick-crack. Sometimes, at night, Jefferson would go to Rosedale. Once he went at three in the morning to watch the house he had put his mind on. But this house was not for sale. Gorblummer, that don't deter me, though. Because one of these mornings it must go up for sale and I will be standing up right here with the money in me hand. One Friday night, in the Paramount Tavern on Spadina with Brewster. Jefferson had a great urge to see his property. He paid for the drinks, said he had to go to the men's room, slipped out through the back door, and nearly ran into a taxi driver hustling women and passengers. He raised his hand to call the taxi cab, but he realized that he had already spent a foolish dollar on Brewster. So he changed his mind and mentally deposited that dollar bill to the 10000 he had in the bank. And he set out on foot. The wind was chilly. Look how I nearly throw away that dollar, poor foolishness. I am still a very strong man at 40. I could walk from Spadina to Rosedale, man. And when he heard his own voice say how wise he was, he walked even faster. Anxiously, he grabbed his left back trousers pocket. Ho ho, he said, and a laugh came out. He didn't trust anybody, certainly not Brewster. He was very glad that the money was in his pocket, and yet for a second he imagined that the money was actually stolen and by Brewster. So, he unpinned the two safety pins, undid the button, and took out the money wrapped in a dirty black handkerchief. His experiences with money had made him uneasy. Any day, he might need it for the down payment, although he could not have known what it would be. And if he wanted a house in Rosedale, he must be prepared. He walked slowly now. There was money in his hand. And when he came under a light, he counted it. Nine hundred dollars. 
This money went to work with him, went to church with him, went into the washroom at work and at home with him. And when he went to bed, it was pinned to his pajamas. Nine, right. He had so much money now, he counted only in hundreds. He put the money back into his pocket, pinned it twice, and buttoned it down. And before he moved on, he made a promise to change the handkerchief. Five years, five years, I come to this country with one pair of shoes. Sometimes, in weaker moments, he would argue with himself to get some education, too. Coming through the university grounds once by chance, he saw a line of men and women crossing the lawn with the lawn strewn with roses and flashbulbs and cheers and laughter and a few tears to give significance to the roses and bulbs. And he felt then seeing the procession, the power of education and of the surrounding buildings. And he had shaken his head and run away. The three hours following, he had spent forgetting and getting drunk in the Paramount. That was five years ago. Now, he didn't have to run. He walked through the grounds jauntily this time because he had $900 in cash in his pocket. And as he came out to enter Queens Park, he saw two shadows, and the two shadows grew into two forms, and one form was raising the skirt above the thigh of the other form. And when they saw him coming, the man covered the girl's reputation with his jacket. <laughs> they remained still, pretending they were shadows until a passing car pointed its finger at the girl's back. And Jefferson saw University of Toronto written in white letters on the man's jacket she was wearing. God damn. He's so broke through education, he can't afford a hotel room. <laughs> Far along Bloor Street, the boasting water van is littering Toronto and making some pedestrians wet, and a man holds half of his body through the driver's window and says, Night! And this greeting carries JTB into Rosedale, quiet as a reservation. Five years of hard work have brought him here tonight in front of this huge mansion. I'm going to have to paint them windows green and throw a coat of black paint on the doors. The screens in the windows will be green like in the West Indies. I'm going to pull up them flowers and put in roses, red ones, and build a paling and build up my property value. And he goes up on the lawn and tries to count the rooms in the four-story house. Imagine me in this house with four stories and not one blasted tenant or boarder. But he cannot count all the rooms from the front, so he goes through the alleyway to look at the backyard and the rooms in the back, and a car passes, and the man driving turns his head left and sees a shadow, and he slows down, and the shadow becomes a form. He stops, says something on the car radio, parks the car, walks back, and waits, and Jefferson 
comes humming back to the front lawn and tries again to count. And four men pounce upon him and drag him along his lawn with hands on his mouth and some in his guts and drop him in the back seat of the cruiser. He can hear voices talking at the same time coming through the radio speaker. Good, a living voice says. Take him to Division Two. And they did that. Jefferson Theophilus Bell of no fixed address, unknown laborer, unskilled, spent a very long time before he convinced them that he was not a burglarer. And in all that time, his head was spinning from the questions and from the blows, because you were walking around this respectable district this time of night with all that money on your person and you're not a burglarer? To buy a house, eh? That doesn't even have a for sale sign up? Who are you kidding, Mac? After that, they gave him one final kick of warning, and with his pride injured, God blind you, cop, one of these days, I'm going to kill me a cop, so help me God. He woke up Brewster to see what he thought. They should still be kicking in your behind, Brewster said in his heart as he rubbed the sleep out of his eyes. Without compassion... He dropped the telephone on Jefferson, and when he got back into bed, his blanket was rising and falling from the breath of his laughter and unkind wishes. Should have kicked in your ass, boy. Brewster couldn't wait for morning and the Paramount to talk about it. After this, Jefferson decided to visit Rosedale in the daytime only. When paydays came, every cent went into his bank and his balance climbed like a mountain. Similarly, his hate for the police. A week later, he took out a summons against Brewster, who owed him $20 from three years ago. He tried to get him arrested, but his lawyer advised otherwise, so Jefferson settled for a collection agency. The collection agency got the money back, but Jefferson gave it back to Brewster. This success convinced him further that business was more important than intellect. Money more important still. He had seen Jews in the Spadina garment district. He had seen Polish immigrants in the Jewish market. He had seen their expensive automobiles going north after a beautiful day of swelling profits. And he said, me too. Soon I going north. Tambien. He stopped drinking at the Paramount. He stopped going to the Silver Dollar for funk, broads, rhythm, blues, and jazz. He didn't want to see any more black people. He spent more time in his room alone. On weekends, he watched television and drank beer and rechecked his bank book because anybody could make a mistake but be Christ, they not making no mistake with my money. His actions and his movements became tense, more ordered. His disposition became raw, and once or twice he lost his temper with his supervisor at the post office, his part-time night job, and almost lost his job. But he only lost a slice of pride apologizing. That hate that grew in his heart because the police presumed he was a burglar, that he could be burglarizing the house of his dreams. God blind you, Mr. Policeman. I am a man too. Presuming that he, Jefferson Theophilus Bell, 
a black Barbadian could only through crime possess $900 in cash. Double blind you, Mr. Ossifer, when I am working off my arse, where was systematically eating away his heart and mind. In isolation, he tried to find some solace. He would tell himself jokes and laugh aloud at his own jokes. Still, something was missing. The boisterousness of the Paramount was gone. He no longer enjoyed Saturday mornings in the Negro barbershop on Dundas, where he and others, middle-aged and cronied, would sit waiting for the chair, laughing themselves into hiccups with jokes with the barber about women they knew when they were younger men. He instead went north from Baldwin Street to the Italian barber on college. Haircuts there were worse and more expensive, and time did not improve them. <laughs> he had almost walked away from his past when on that bright Saturday morning, God damn, baby, the voice picked him out, sneaking out of the Italian barbers, brushing the hair out of his neck. He squirmed because he recognized the voice. It came again, loud and vulgar. I say, God damn, baby. Jefferson pretended he was just one of the European immigrants walking the street, and he walked on, hiding his head in invisible shame. The voice had disappeared. He relaxed and breathed more easily, and suddenly he felt the hand on his neck. And God damn it, baby, ain't you speaking to no niggas this morning, you sweet black motherfucker? All the eyes in the foreign language heads turned to listen. Then in a voice that the eyes couldn't hear, Brewster said, Lend me a couple of bucks, baby. Races. Jefferson Theophilus Bell made a mental note right then, never again, to speak to black people. He found himself walking through the campus grounds again, spending long hours pondering the stern buildings, the library crammed with knowledge and print, and the building where he had seen the lines of penguins dressed in black and white like graduate scholars. Education is a funny thing, <laughs> and I had better get a piece of that too. He argued himself into a piece of education, but he held fast to the piece of property too. He visited some institutions and took away their prospectuses to study. These things make me out as if I don't know two and two is four. Hmm. That the world round, that Columbus discovered it in 1492, that that bastard sailed down in my islands and come back and called them Indian. If it was me make that mistake, my boss would fire my ass tomorrow. I am an educated man, therefore. And he began to see himself in the diplomatic service. He telephoned the university to see how he could become a diplomat. And after the initial shock of silence, the woman's voice advised him to read all the histories of the world. He borrowed a book, The History of the World from the public library on College Street and an atlas of the world, and he turned on the television set instead. Mr. Jefferson Theophilus Bell 
was written on each of the four envelopes that brought more prospectuses. He felt inferior that nothing was written behind his name. So he wrote on each envelope behind his name, B.A., Ph.D., M.A., M.Lit., D.Lit., Diploma in Diplomacy, Barbadian Ambassador to Canada. And he laughed. Then he got a basin, a new one, lit a match, and burned everything. The last to burn was the prospectus from the Department of History in the university. He watched all the knowledge he might have had burn and consume. And he laughed. This was on a Sunday. And he went on the couch drinking and watching television. And after a while, he fell back on the couch, quite suddenly as if the string that regulated his life was cut. The half-empty bottle of warm beer was still in his hand. The landlady passing through after bingo at her church pushed the door to say night-night and saw him on the couch. She turned off the television. She put the large plan of the grounds of Ryerson over his face. She took the bottle from his hand and drank it off. She put two others in her coat pocket, said, bringing them back to the two beers, and she left. Monday came too early. He could feel pebbles of hangover in his eyes and the raucous shouting of his landlady. You really tied one on last night, Mr. Jefferson. Belle, you really tied one on. was like an enamel plate banged on stone against his temples. And then, suddenly, he came to a dead stop before his 1949 Pontiac. Somebody had scratched Fact You Muck in shaky, inebriated grease on the frost of his windshield and trunk. A thing like this couldn't happen up in Rosedale. It couldn't. All that day, at his full-time paint factory job, and all that night at the post office, he was tense. He soon discovered that his energy was being sapped from him. He wondered whether he should quit his night job. He had enough money now, but no man. The house in Rosedale, man. He worked harder that night, and when he went home, he did 23 push-ups. And then, it happened. A for sale sign appeared on the house beside his house. This threw him into a fit, trying to decide whether to buy that house. It was empty, no furniture, and had 13 rooms when a letter came from home. He recognized his mother's handwriting on the red, white, and blue airmail envelope and refused to open it. The tension came back. He took the letter to the light bulb to see if he could read the news inside without opening it. Look. Jeff, boy, opportunity does knock only one time in Rosedale. And that was it. He called the real estate agent and arranged the purchase.
Let's get back to our story. The tenseness left him. He could see himself cutting red, luxuriant roses he had planted, waving his hand at a beautiful woman, calling her and pinning a rose on her bosom. But the rose he held in his hand now was the real estate agent's number. And when he realized this, he tore it up. The paper petals fell without a noise, but now he was Jefferson Theophilus Bell Esquire, landowner and property owner, public school taxpayer. He had no children. He would give his occupation in the voters list as engineer, retired. <laughs> the letter, though, Jeff. Stop this blasted dreaming about house and land and see what the old queen have to say, but don't let more sorrow fall upon your head. And remember where you begin from. Because a mother is a mother, boy. Because, dear Jeff, when you left this island, I asked God to help you. Now, I want you and God to help me. I know he helped you because somebody tell me so and still you have not sent me one blind cent. But God understand. You did not know I was laid up with a great sickness. I have a new doctor now, a Bayesian who studied medicines up in Canada where you is. He told me, you can help me because there's a lot of money in Canada. I need an operation. I feel bad to ask you though, but I am your mother. Signed, Mother. Postscript. Houses, spots selling dirt cheap now in Barbados. Think, love, mother. Don't forget to read your Bible, Jefferson. It is God's word, son. Love again. Still, mother. Months later, in Rosedale, he would see the page burning and the words would haunt him in whispers and he would tell himself that he should have torn up the letter only and not the Bible too. <laughs> but when he had put his hands to it that day, he had no idea that it was such a fragile book and he should have sent the money to his mother, sick then, dead probably now, the page, the last page before the Bible cried out in the fire and the line, remember not the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. But life in Rosedale flourished like a red rose. An invitation card of gold embossed print was dropped through his letterbox. He did not notice the name on the envelope which he tore up and tossed away, but he read that Miss Emily Elizabeth Hetherington was engaged to Mr. Asquith Brightington Kelly. And they were having a party at number 46, next door. This pleased Jefferson. The next day he joined Theophilus to Bell with a hyphen 
For three days, he sunned his suit to kill the evil fragrance of camphor balls. He dressed for the party and waited behind his curtains made of newspapers to watch the first guests arriving. Everyone was in formal wear. They came in Jaguars and Lincolns and Cadillacs. He took off his brown suit, lit his fireplace, and spent the evening sitting on an onion crate. Long after he had returned, posted his invitation in the flames, in anger and disappointment, he could still hear the merriment next door. He wondered why nobody called him. But the fire died, and he was awakened by a cramp and a dream of his mother. He puttered around his house, and he drew some parallel lines on the walls of three rooms as bookcases, and he drew books between the lines until he could get some real books from the Book of the Month Club. Before going to bed, he decided to change his car. He must buy a new car because living in a district like this and being the onlyest man who does do work with his bare hands and, and that oil company president next door, God blind him, comes along limping on the weight of his walking stick and smells the freshness of the grass and water and roses and looks up and smiles and says, Evening. Have you heard when... They're coming back. Jefferson always pretended he didn't understand. Another time, the old oil man said, You're a darn fine gardener. Best these people ever had. Better than those Italians, too. He had said this on the afternoon of the party, and thinking about the old man's words, Jefferson had to look at that invitation again to see something very important on it. But he remembered he had burned both the envelope and the invitation. He vowed never to burn anything again. There were many invitations printed in the blood of ink and many Bibles with remember not the sins of my youth printed on every page. He traded his Pontiac for a 1965 Jaguar, automatic. It was long, sleek, and black. After this, he dressed in a three-piece suit for work with a black briefcase. In the briefcase were old shoes, work shirt, and overalls. He would change into these in the men's room of the East End Cafe near East End Paints Limited, where he worked as janitor and maintenance general. He bought a formal morning suit and a tuxedo for evening formal occasions. Sometime after, the stick that walked out with the old oil man next door, stopped and said, when are they coming back? Jefferson got mad and told him, look, I own this, yeah? And the name is Jefferson Theophilus Bell. The man of oil stretched out his hand, grabbed JTBs and said amiably, I'm Bill. Jefferson had just come home on this Friday afternoon and is changing into his night shift clothes. There was no danger of being caught at night when the doorbell rings. It is his first caller. He looks at the half-eaten sandwich of peanut butter and wonders what to do with it. The doorbell is ringing, and he can feel himself losing weight. 
and he wishes he had filled the prescription the doctor gave him for tension. He stops before the mirror he had hung in his imagination on the wall in the hall to see if peanut butter is between his teeth. But it is only Bill's wife who came to invite him for the second time to the party on Saturday when the scandalous voice from his past entered and shrieked, God damn, ain't you one big sweet black motherfucker? And Jefferson rushed out of one room and whispered, Christ, man, not now, somebody here. But the voice, thinking past his present, said, man, we was looking for you for a crap game last Saturday night, baby. Man, those fellas drink whiskey like water. And Bill's wife came in, smiled, and said, oh, you're busy, but don't forget Saturday. And she left. Jefferson jumped into a rage, but the voice merely asked, what did I do? And after looking through the first room and the second, the voice exclaimed, but wait, Jeff, where's the blasted furnitures, man? The voice took a long pull on his cigarette and said, baby, you made your bed, now goddamn lie in it. And he slapped Jefferson goodbye and said, let me off here. I want to get good and blind drunk tonight. They were opposite the Paramount. Jefferson had forgotten the landmarks on this street. He had forgotten the smoke and vapor from the southern fried chicken wings fried in fat and haste by the Chinaman whose face never showed a change in emotion. And in forgetting all these, he had forgotten to have time in Rosedale to enjoy himself. A party of rich, educated people of Holt Renfrew tastes, he always ill at ease. Now, Mr. Theophilus Bell as a P-E-N-G structural, I ask you, what do you consider to be the structural aesthetics of our new city hall? In less champagne and whiskey company, his answer, which showed his ignorance, that might not have brought cheers and the Jewish jokes and Polish jokes and he structural and Jefferson and engineer dreading every moment in case the jokes change into Negro jokes or walking beneath a crystal chandelier and praying he won't touch it and break it and have to offer out of courtesy to replace it and finding that he had to and standing before the mirror on Bill's wall and suddenly seeing that he was not after all the fairest reflection of them all and running out through the door. Jefferson turned off the car lights and sat thinking. And Brewster appeared from nowhere with a white woman on his arm sauntering to the ladies and escorts entrance. Since he had been living in Rosedale, Jefferson had not taken a woman, black nor white nor blue, up his front steps. He blew his horn. Brewster looked back. The woman looked too and said, Piss off! He closed the car door. He started the car. He drove beside the Paramount hoping to see Brewster, but only a drunk came out. And when he saw Jefferson, he raised his hand and coughed and vomited on the gravel beside the ladies and escorts. Well, he might turn west for Baldwin Street to see his ex-landlady, to see if the house is still there, or if the city of Temperman Wreckers have. But he turned east for the post office. 
That night he forgot to notice the letters addressed to Rosedale. He spent his time thinking of formal parties. Of All of a sudden he had a very disturbing vision which destroyed his joy in formal suits. Instead of being at Bill's party, dressed and formal as an undertaker, he saw himself in a funeral parlor, laid out, tidy and dead, prepared for burial, with his hands clasped on the visible cummerbund, and on the cummerbund his gold ring and his pocket watch. Jefferson wondered who would dress him for his coffin. Would the person remember to include both formal suits? He was thinking evil of Brewster. Who would get his life insurance on his death and his life savings, $300 and descending because of the new Jaguar, and the formal suits and the new curtains and the true form mattress he had ordered yesterday from Eaton's because the canvas cot was leaving marks and pains in his back, his hands trembling with the letters in them for 23 minutes, and before he knew it, the supervisor was there. Come with me. Ten minutes later, three hours before his shift should have ended, he still could not understand why he hadn't killed the supervisor. Why he had stood like a fool, silent, without explaining that he was a man under doctor's prescriptions for tension, and why, goddammit, he hadn't flattened his ass with a right or smashing his false teeth. Because I'd been on this post office job more than four years even before that bastard. But he was entering tranquility in Rosedale now, and the only person he saw on the road was a black man. A black man in my Rosedale? At this time? And then he saw her, close as a leech, walking beside him. His house was empty and quiet. Tired now, he undressed, and stood for a while, thinking of what to do. He put on his pajamas. He got into his cot. He got out of his cot and dressed himself in his evening formal tuxedo. It was two o'clock Saturday a.m. He walked up to the full-length mirror on the wall and smiled at the reflection the wall and his imagination threw back. And he adjusted his hat in the wall and straightened his shoulders and started walking in and out of each of the 13 rooms, smiling at women, black women, white women, blue women. And it was such a good evening, Miss Jordan. Good evening, Bill Tank's lovely party. Lady How How, the name is Theophilus Bell, engineer, structural and retired. <laughs> oh, Mr. Stein, I can now purchase 4,000 shares at five. My solicitors will contact you tomorrow, Monday. Ha, ha, of course, it's Sunday. And don't call me, I'll call thee. Ha, ha. Well, you see, Lady Ha, ha, I was having cocktails in the Russian embassy, discussing the possibility of granting nuclear weapons to Barbados and other Caribbean territories when Brewster entered. Only later did JTB notice the woman there. Brewster was saying, Jesus, God, Jesus, God, over and over. 
and the woman's mouth was open in terror and pity. Comrade, may I introduce my colleague, the African delegate from... What the hell are you playing, boy? You don't know Brewster? I just passed you on the street. And his charming wife, also from Africa. Brewster had to laugh. <laughs> Look at you, you foolish bitch, he said. Take this. The telegram fell in front of Jefferson. Your landlady sent that. She had to open it because she couldn't find you. It's your mother. She dead, boy. Thank you. Thank you, comrade, for these tidings. And Jefferson, Theophilus Bell, continued to walk up and down the hollow house, Brewster and the woman still staring, muttering greetings and whispers to his guests, and answering himself, and holding the telegram in his left hand. That hand resting militarily on the black cummerbund as he bowed and walked, walked and bowed, bowed and walked. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. DeFitt Charles. DeFitt Charles. And now for my conversation with Aita Sadu. Aita, welcome. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to see to all these people on the 20 in the audience. <laughs> it's great to be here. Aita, you knew Austin Clark. Yes, I did. Tell me about the first time you met him. First time I met Austin Clark was when I was a, a child in Barbados, actually. Hmm. And um, I went to school in Barbados. And uh, Austin came to Barbados. And at that point in time, he was the manager or the uh, chief executive officer of the Caribbean Broadcasting Corporation, right? the nation's national television. And right? he made this thing. He came up with these policies. And he looked and he thought, oh, our anchors and broadcasters are very European yeah. in dress. Right. And we have our own national and indigenous uh, wear, shirt jacks. They're really elegant. Right. They're really dressy. Right. So I think that the people on television as broadcasters bring in the nightly news should reflect the nation. So he said, all people, you must wear shirt jacks and all the men. And he made us see that sense of pride of things that were African and Bayesian. Right. And at the same time, a calypso was made on him. So I was sitting there thinking, you had a guitarist up here playing so beautifully. Austin must be smiling to think, oh, in all my years, I just love calypso <laughs> and the bards. And of all the things, LaVarga is going to come with a... Uh, a, a guitarist, you know, to accompany him. Yeah. So as a child, I was informed about Austin True Music through the Calypso, and my uncle Hal went to school with Austin, so he would always come home and he would say, that man, Clarky, Clarky, he real bright, yeah, he real, real bright. So this was my introduction to Austin. Very bright, bright man, you yeah. know, and in the Caribbean, you don't say one bright, it's like ten brights. Yeah. And... 
And then one day, I, I came back to Toronto, and I read his book, uh, Growing Up Stupid Under the Union Jack, mm -hmm. and I remember that that was one of those very first books of Caribbeanness. For us, Austin was a Canadian writer and a Caribbean writer because he defined things. I was so happy, too, when he won the Commonwealth Award. To me, that represented 2.3 billion people, 53 countries. You feeling the guy? Right. Not the guy was major like that. Right. So I go to Parkdale Library where Dr. Rita Cox um, had created the Black and Caribbean collection. Right. And she had this wonderful moment uh, where she invited Austin and uh, Bruce and John and all of these literary giants of the Caribbean. And I roll up onto the library and there's Austin and he's coming out of a taxi with Bruce and John. And he's wearing a straw hat. And he's wearing like Bermuda shorts. He had great legs. I got to tell you that, right? I don't even know that's correct to say now, but he had great legs, right? He was wearing Bermuda. No, no offense, Loretta. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and here he was. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, that is Austin Clark. Now, when you were doing the reading and you got to that moment in the story where there was that small talk, you know, pleased to meet you, oh my gosh. <laughs> it took me back to that moment in the library when those men read and to capture the mood or the environment in a story of people at a party. So all the time that you were reading his story, he packed so many things into them, so many Austin things into them. Um, it took me back to that night where I could hear the cadence of the Caribbean being, my language, the rhythm, the mm. structure, the eloquence, the mm. pro go on. And as a result, I became like an Austin fan and groupie, mm. and we became friends. Mm. Yeah, it's all kind of cool, right? He, he, he was good. Love to travel with him. I've traveled with him on three occasions. And one thing I will say to all people, and I say this all the time when I'm making this example, Austin was a disciplined writer. You could hang out with Austin till like six o'clock in the morning. Austin probably had like 2,000 martinis, and you probably have like one drink. And Austin would still go and sit at his desk and have his, his coffee and write. Right. If it was a word, if it was a sentence, right. that is the, the gift that he had mm. as a writer. Mm. And the discipline. And the discipline. To, to, yeah. to mine yeah. that gift. And I've got to say this to LeVar, doing this podcast in hot docs in the neighborhood that we are in, the right. Bathurst Bloor Annex neighborhood, again, Austin is smiling. Austin lived up the street here for a moment on Brunswick Street. Mm. So we are very much present mm. in his neighborhood. He probably had a lot of groundings at the Contrast newspaper, the black newspaper that was just right around the corner. And he probably contributed articles to that. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, one of our, the oldest black bookstore in the country, third world bookstore in its heyday, he was a patron there. He mm -hmm. held court there. Mm -hmm. So to choose this, this neighborhood is like the literary capital of Toronto. Right. So to, have, to, to be in this space is a very Austin moment. It's an honor to be here. Yes, very, very cool. Genuinely. genuinely. Yes. And, and, and I got to say, too... Um, when I heard that I had the opportunity to be here with you, the first thing that came to my imagination, because uh, I can date myself and I know you from Roots. I know some people start to clap because they know you from Reading Rainbow. And then like the Star Trekkies, the next generation got even amped it up, right? But when I heard that I had this opportunity, the thing that came to my mind was, you are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And so... You 
uh, told us a story uh, in Roots, and then you became that griot mm. to bring stories to us. Mm. And now you're using technology. Mm. Uh, when Austin spoke, the Polish Hull, um, uh, the CNIB, uh, uh, had that available um, and made it an audiobook. I rejoiced and I was happy. That was significant, too, for us as African-Canadian writers. It was a byproduct. It was the next level. Right. So here you are, too, with this podcast, and there are people here from so many agents across so many races and cultures. I think it's a wonderful thing that you're using technology to let the world know about a man who defined Canadian literature and who represented a region, uh, the Caribbean region, and gave us enormous pride. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Amen. He resisted, didn't he, becoming a Canadian citizen for a long time? Uh, he did. Yeah. Um, there are a number of men, uh, the great Charles Roach, again, his office was up the street here, and he was one of our freedom fighters, and he too has transitioned. Um, and they resisted. It's, it's pledging the allegiance to the queen. Mm. Austin, I, I believe the giftedness of Austin is it was in the complexity of the man. Right. Um, Austin would always talk about race and class and working class peoples, always the story of women, the domestics, uh, come into this country, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. At the same time, in Barbados, Austin was privileged to go to the elite school, the Harrison College of Barbados. Mm. And he, he appreciated great things. And one of the things, too, I often think about Austin is this, is I often think that when he is writing or was writing, he thought about his mother. Because Austin could assume that female persona, that voice. And any time, too, that you heard him read publicly, oh, he was a hard act to follow. I'm telling you, my brother, mm. Mm, right? It would have been something right now, you know, mm, right? But I, I, but I, I often... I often, when I think of him, I think that often Austin uh, loved his mother and had her in such a, a high esteem mm. that he saw the world oftentimes through her point of view. His and novel, The Polished Ho, is, it, it has a woman protagonist, a female protagonist. Uh, more, which I thought would have won the Governor General's Award again, uh, a woman protagonist. But even going back to growing up stupid under the Union Jack, where we are introduced to his mother and uh, the things that she did to to for educated for education to have mm. him education when you read and, and I want to go back to your reading uh, of the story there were so many things first of all the theo the Theophilus mm. that's like one of those Bayesian kind names. of names you know yeah. like when you baptize your child you give them 25 names and later on when you come to Canada you go to Niagara Falls and baptize them because it's plenty water you need with all those names right so <laughs> immediately like boom Theophilus like oh my gosh right, right? Uh, and there's that when he when uh, Jefferson spots the couple at the University of Toronto right. again that's an Austin moment again telling us that importance of education, of education. and and I and, and and I was happy that you read that particular story because you talked about the, the paramount one of the cool things too about Austin was location yeah. we're talking Rosedale this audience here we right. can picture you said the uh, Jefferson was going to walk from Spadina to Rosen and everybody in this room think that man mad he didn't know Uber like, <laughs> 
like, what is happening, right? It's like, what happened in here, right? But, but again, the, 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 the spaces he takes us through. But right. back to the Paramount. The Paramount was a place where African Canadians, especially Scotians, would hang out. Mm. Those people who have had that history from the 1600s. Right. So I found it fascinating that he would choose the Paramount and Brewster as the character. And as you got towards the ending of the reading, it struck me that what this piece do was saying, how do we sing in a strange land? Mm. Took me right back to the rivers of Babylon, that, 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 that kind of lyric. And here is Jefferson coming. And he's that emigrant, and he has all those ideals. And of course, Canada got plenty money. Oh gosh, because everybody came from England, think it was paved with gold, right? And it wasn't, so they came to Canada thinking that we had all this money. But Austin now takes us to that moment at the university, and he inserts that in the story. That's the education. Um, he was a scholar. I know he wouldn't say that he was, or put that in his title, but he was a scholar. He was he was an intellect. I remember when um, Amiri Baraka Leroy Jones, Jones mm-hmm. uh, came to the city um, as a guest some years ago and one of the first things he said is I must go to see Austin Clark and Austin wasn't well on that day so we went to his home it was like a pilgrimage it was like going to Mecca Austin's house was like going to Mecca not only did you get to meet him and bask in all of this but at the same time he cooked oh my gosh he Mm. could cook Mm. you ever had scrambled eggs with whiskey oh my god he could cook it's like like brilliant like that he could cook right I know take you to a whole nother level and his library his library was like, you know, hot dogs, you think you big, but Austin's library is like real big, right? And there's all of that, all, all of that. But when Amiri Biraka met Austin and those two men met, you felt that you were in the moment of greatness. Mm-hmm. Here are two literary giants, giants, two people who also to a renaissance men, right. two people who are also to part of movements, the Black Panther movements, the politics of the 60s. And Austin, too, again, the complexity of Austin, one can say that Austin ran for the Conservative Party at one point, and he may argue that, you know, join any party, and if you make a breakthrough, you're in the room and you're at the table. But at the same time, Austin, too, was one of those people who showed us to look within us and see the beauty of us as African people and as Caribbeanists. Thanks and praise to our friend Aita for joining us on stage. It was wonderful. Thank you. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the very talented Julia Smith. Nobody better in the business than what she does. We also had help from Audrey No, and this episode was edited by Brendan Burns. Music by Defet Charles. He's got a new album out, which is available on iTunes, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Play. It's called Le Pop Crazy. Go get yourself a copy. And if you're in Toronto, go visit Aitasadu at a different book list. You can also order books from them online where they've curated an awesome selection. They're at adifferentbooklist.com. And finally, thank you to the estate of Austin Clark, especially his daughter Loretta, who arranged for me to read his story. I am extremely grateful to his entire family, and you can find today's story, Four Stations in His Circle, in Austin's collection entitled Choosing His Coffin, available as part of a Kindle collection by Dundurn Books. Now, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving that review, why not suggest a story for the show? LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher, our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelet mast of the Flying Radelet Sisters and 
yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.